with your presence, O Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, David. These masks. Well, we uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been in the controversial subject of manifestational gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. We thought we'd take a break and do a less controversial subject, Jesus and politics. Woohoo! Let's poke the bear, shall we? <clears throat> I want to begin with a story. I... Uh, I was serving in the south suburbs of Chicago in social work, and at uh, one of my fellow co-workers, his name was Steve, and he had some background in faith, but he was interested in things of the faith. And, and so we started to have some conversations during work and outside of work, and, some, and finally I was so honored and blessed to lead Steve into a prayer of receiving Christ as his Lord and Savior. Steve and I were co-workers. We didn't live near one another. I said, Steve, I want to encourage you to engage in a church that's near where you live so that you might continue your faith and grow and so forth. So he and his wife did. They, they found a church, and uh, eventually, a couple months later, he invited me to his baptismal service. Isn't that awesome? Steve and his wife were black, and they had found a predominantly black church. So when I went, I was obviously in the minority. But I have to say, I loved so many aspects of the service. The worship was tremendous. They had a gospel choir that just knocked my socks off. The baptism to this day is still my favorite baptism, even those that I've been involved in because they had a true baptismal. The, the pastor came out in his robes, and the, the gospel choir was singing, and, and then the gospel choir would calm down, the person would come out, make their profession, they'd baptize, and the gospel choir came back, and it was awesome. It was tremendous. Honestly, I'd have to say, there was an aspect of the service that was not awesome in my estimation. It was the sermon. Not because it was poorly delivered or anything like that, but it was because it was so political in nature. In fact, I remember the, the pastor gave, this is 20 plus years ago, the pastor gave an analogy of a chess, chess match. And you had the Republicans on one side and God and the Democrats on the other. And we were just about to have an election, and this election was going to be checkmate for God and the Democrats. Now, I really wasn't that offended. I, I was actually more surprised. I, I attended a, a predominantly white church, but really our church didn't talk that much about politics. I just knew that, that most were Republicans, Unlike my parents who are social workers, and when you're a social worker, you tend to lean towards the, the Democrats. They were Democrats. I just assumed they were the minority, but I was just surprised it was so strong and specific and dominant in the message. And I remember thinking about this and walking away and going, huh, how, 
How does Jesus handle that? Like you've got one church over here that's praying for this candidate and checkmate for this candidate, and then you've got this church over here that's, they're praying for the other candidate. How does Jesus, well, well, whoever prays the most, I'll let win. I mean, is that how it works? Like, how does it work? And that really began me thinking more deeply, like how, how should I approach politics as a Christian? How, how, what's the relationship as a Christian? Do, how, do I, how do I pray for the system? How do I pray for the candidates? How do I vote, of course? How do I just engage in this when I talk with people, especially Steve, and I talk about just led him to Christ? How will my words to Steve as a mature Christian in his eyes reflect the political process, but more importantly, my Christian faith and how I engage in that? And there's, of course, a deeper or greater sense of question of relationship of the church and the state. Do I, do I advocate for a theocracy that, that we would become the new Israel, the United States? Do I disengage altogether and just say, ah, oh, they're all horrible? What do I do? Well, of course, I would say and argue the best place to turn is CNN. No, I'm just kidding. Scripture and Jesus, of course, right? That we want, I think, that we want to look at how did Jesus engage the politics of his day? How did Jesus engage this church and state dynamic? Can we learn? Of course we can learn. What are the implications of Jesus' engagement in this process? I believe the church is in desperate need of some understanding of how we approach our state, our country, our politics, all of those things. And I believe there's a phrase in Scripture that will help set a foundation for us. This phrase has really served me again and again as I've thought about its implications. We find it in the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's in Luke, Mark, and Matthew. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 19. Jesus just got done. Much of Jesus' teaching ministry was kind of like a dialogue with the religious leaders of his day. And some of them were engaged very deeply in the political system, others less so. So he was uh, engaging them in a variety of different ways. In Luke 20, he tells this parable of these wicked tenants and the religious leaders figure out he's talking about them. And so at one point in Jesus' ministry, they decide it would be good for them and the nation if Jesus were to just go away. Whether the Roman authorities would take him out and kill him, whether, uh, whether the people would, would stone him, whatever that would be, it would just be better for everyone if Jesus was taken out. So verse 19 
in Luke chapter 20 reads like this. It says, The teachers of the law and the chief priests, the religious leaders, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. The religious leaders had some power. They could arrest. They, they couldn't do capital punishment, but they could um, exact some punishment. But they were afraid of the people. It was holding their power and authority in check. Verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies. They're going to try a new strategy against Jesus, who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor, Pontius Pilate. Let's see if we can get Jesus in trouble with the Romans and get him taken out. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We're going to pause right there for just a moment and understand this lose-lose situation. They set a trap for Jesus. And really, they're trying to make it so, whichever way he answers, he is in trouble. Okay, so if he says, no, we don't pay taxes, who's he in trouble with? The state, the Romans, they would see him as a rebel. They would see, and they crucify rebels, right? They want to get him in trouble. So if he says, yes, or or no, no taxes. We're not going to participate in this foreign state. No. But if he says, yes, you had people, Jews, within his surround, the people there, Even his apostles, some of his apostles, they were like, hey, no, no, no. God is the only king that we have. By paying taxes, it is participating in this foreign rule and reign. No, you could call them Israeli nationalists. That they thought that you should rise up and rebel and they were waiting for a king, a Messiah to come to lead in the rebellion and throw off this foreign rule and take control and power by faith. It's interesting, did you know that among the apostles, the original 12, there were two Simons. One is Simon Peter, who we know, The other Simon is referred to in a very interesting way. Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. And Zealots in Jesus' time, the Jewish Zealots, they were serious. They were aggressively political. Their focus was the national and religious life of Jesus. The Jewish people, they despised even Jews. Who would want to make peace or even conciliation with the Romans? Potentially, Jesus could lose tons and lose face with people, with his own apostles. With oh, he's selling out to the Romans. We're going to stop following him. 
You see, for Jesus, it was a lose-lose proposition. So what does Jesus do? Well, in part, he asks a question. Let's read. Verse, uh, where'd we leave off? 23. Uh, is that right? Yeah. He saw through their duplicity, their hypocrisy, their trickery, and said to them, show me a de denarius, which is about the wages of a, a one person's uh, daily work. All right, a coin, a silver coin. Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. That's the phrase I'd like us to think deeply about. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Simultaneously, I think, brilliant, incredible. He escapes the lose-lose situation. And at the same time, I go, what does that mean? How, how do we understand that? How, what all is, is Jesus communicating he's not just getting out of a lose-lose a situation, but I believe there's some implications to that single phrase that, that the church would do well to think deeply about and apply it to our lives. So a few implications of that phrase, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Part of that is Jesus is quite simply, straightforwardly, drawing a distinction between church and state. He's saying there is a difference, and as we live, as we think, as we understand, we too would do well to recognize the vast difference between the earthly governments and the kingdom of God. That we also, not only is he drawing a distinction, but he's also giving, um, uh, he's validating is the word I'm looking for, validity to the earthly governments of the world. He's disagreeing with the zealots. He's, he's not saying, yeah, all government is wrong because we believe in God. We throw everything out. No. He's recognizing that the earthly governments have a role and we have a role in them. The other thing that he's doing is he's saying, be careful that you draw the appropriate distinction that too close of an association of the two is not from God. If you blur that distinction, if you fail in that distinction, we actually know through history, bad things happen. That no earthly government or rule acts 
now in this time of history as the rulership of God, not the nation of Israel. Jesus is doing that. He's disagreeing. Not the United States, not Rome. He's saying draw a distinction, just a little bit of a rabbit hole, but worth saying. In our history is imperialism, and something called manifest destiny. I, the idea is that God has chosen this nation above all to exact his will around the world. And so we will conquer to spread the will of God. Manifest destiny. I would say this phrase by Jesus points us in a different direction than associating any nation, any kingdom, with that of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus draws the distinction. In fact, the inspired biblical authors did not get that sense of manifest destination following Jesus' words. In fact, they went a different direction in understanding church and state. What they did is that they said, listen, you have a citizenship primarily that is rooted not in any earthly state or kingdom or government, but first and foremost, you are a citizen of? In fact, I like this word. It's an old word. It's a sojourner. It's sojourners. In fact, Peter the Apostle said this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners or, or aliens, foreigners, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are those who don't have their citizenship in heaven. But as you live among the foreign people, as you are an alien, as you are a pilgrim, as you are a sojourner, live such a life that's a testimony to those that don't have their citizenship in heaven. We talked about this in our Kingdom Ambassadors class, right? And I asked this question, do you, do you see yourself, can we go back to that uh, Peter passage, do you see yourself today as a sojourner, as an alien, as a pilgrim. I, I don't have a big black hat or anything like that. I, I, I think we would really do well to begin to understand ourselves from this way. Do we have that first Peter passage? Uh, up there, could we put that on the screens? That we would begin understanding ourselves that our citizenship is primarily in the kingdom of heaven. When we speak to one another, when we're on social media, when we're engaged in this, we need to begin to think of ourselves as this is not our primary citizenship, but our primary one is in heaven. Peter is saying that your place of attention first and foremost, you may have a dual citizenship, 
but your primary citizenship is in heaven. Think of the early church, for example. When they gave their lives to Christ, if they were Jew, they were rejected by the Orthodox Jews. The, the, the Jewish nation was not their nation anymore. If they were Gentile, they were persecuted by the Romans. That, that was no longer their primary citizenship. The, for the first several hundred years, the church was persecuted. The apostles were playing off of Jesus' words and saying, remember, you're a sojourner. You're an alien. You're a pilgrim in this world. I want to suggest to you that Jesus, part of what Jesus means is that we would live with a holy distance. That we would be, because of Christ, separated to a certain degree. Matthew 6.33 points us in this direction. He says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He's saying, make sure your attention, your focus is on the kingdom of heaven. I want to suggest this. That if you are really, really filled with fear and anxiety of how this election goes, if you, if you, and I've, I watch all the stations, right, and I see that, and pretty much every station says, this is the most important election in our lifetime. Have you heard that? Yes. And, and if the other guy wins, what happens? It's, we're done. We're over. It's done. And people, if you have thought, if the other guy wins, I'm moving to Canada. Perhaps we're too close to the political system. If we're being filled with anxiety, and don't get me wrong, I'm not casting judgment here. When you engage in the television, in the process, they, they are filling us with anxiety. If that, oh my, I can't believe, can you believe, what this has to stop, move that, and it stirs you up. I want to suggest that we're too close to the earthly political process and we are not prioritizing enough the kingdom of heaven. Last I checked, Jesus is not planning to remove himself from the throne room of God depending on who wins the election November 3rd, right? He's going to be on the throne November 2nd, November 3rd, November 4th. He's there. Think about this. Jesus came to start a revolution. He was going to change the world, yes? And he's changing the world. And he comes and he disengages from the politics of his day. In fact, it was wrongly understood. The kingdom of God, they were waiting for this political kingdom. They were waiting for this geographical kingdom. Jesus comes, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And they're like, yes, grab the swords. Let's go, Jesus. Jesus. 
And a big part of his ministry was redefining how God is going to change the world, no longer through a political kingdom or nation, but through the kingdom of God that begins within and then unfolds. Wherever you live in the earth, whatever nation you are under, whatever your secondary citizenship is, it's the kingdom of God that is the revelation, that is the revolution in our lives. I think we would do well to learn the lessons that he was teaching the early disciples. God is changing the world one heart at a time as the kingdom of heaven enters each life and each soul. Amen? Amen. All right, I got lost on my notes here. All right, part of the phrase, let's talk about this. I want to suggest that some of us are too close to the political process, and some of us are too far from the political process. Some of us are too close, and some of us are too far. Because when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, he's saying, an implication is, you have a civic duty. I'm calling you to engage with whatever political system or civic duty you have responsibilities, and I'm telling you to engage with those civil duties, civil responsibilities, with heaven as your priority, engage. Now, I get it. Sometimes I have the temptation of getting too close to the political process. Sometimes I have a temptation of getting too far, a la, I can't believe this is horrible, politics are terrible right now, I'm out. I believe the implications of Jesus' words, he's saying, you have a civic responsibility and duty. And I want to suggest also that the New Testament, if you look at the New Testament and the inspired authors, there is a default mode of how we are to engage in our government and in our politics. The default mode, I don't think that we're going to like it very much. But the default mode is civil obedience. Submission to the government. What if I disagree with default mode? Yes, but that is the stupid civil obedience. Listen to this. Peter goes on from that sojourner passage and he says this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority that you agree with. Oh, wait, I didn't. No, that's. Oh, that was my own. No, go back to that. I was making that up. Let me start again. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every Human authority. Every governing authority. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I I jumped, didn't I? I'm sorry. 
Let me read this again. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake for every human authority, whether to the emperor or to the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Uh, That's not what we have up there. That's Peter. Now we have Paul. Paul is saying the same thing as Peter. He says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except the that which God has established, the authorities that exist have been established by God. He goes on, this is also why you pay taxes. See how the the early disciples, the, the inspired authors are building off of this moment in Jesus' life. For the authorities are God's servants who live their full time Live their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That's pretty clear, right? Like there's not tons of ambiguity there. I had one congregational member say, Pastor, thank you so much for following the government. I was like, well, Romans 13. I kept just saying, read Romans 13. I, I don't think that we're supposed to wrestle with obedience and submission. If I can just say a word about masks, right? We're obeying. We follow that, right? I, I dislike them as much as any of you. I might not even agree with all of the, the parameters that our government is putting around, but what's my default mode? It's obedience. In fact, I, I think that's the testimony that the early uh, inspired authors are saying Part of the primary testimony of Christians is our obedience and submission to the government. That's our default mode. Now, the story doesn't really press into Jesus' story, civil disobedience, but I think it's an important category that we should talk about. I believe there are times when we are being asked to violate a a moral principle, right? For example, when it was the religious leaders at this moment, when when the apostles were preaching uh, healing and restoration and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, we're told, they tell them, stop preaching. It says, then they called them in again, the religious leaders, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. I love that phrase, especially because these were religious leaders. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There are times that we are called to civil disobedience, regardless of the consequences that are there. A great history is Eusebius. Read, it's the first couple hundred years of the early church, And again, Rome is 
pressing in and trying to squelch the sect, this poison that is Christianity. And they're laying all these rules and the Christians in their testimony are confessing Christ and they celebrate when they're beheaded or tortured or killed. It's, it's amazing. And I think, yes, there are times that civil disobedience we are called to. I would say masks is not one of those times. Yes? Now, gathering, restricting our gathering, I want to say, in my humble opinion, that's debatable. At the very least, I think it's okay. Some churches uh, across the country have gone to the states and said, hey, can you think about this? And they've challenged the government in in courts. I, I think that's very acceptable. I think that's a form of arguing against that, yes, but I am not in favor of saying up yours to the government, right? Even, in fact, many in seminary, I remember learning from a professor, one of them was saying that some of the Sermon on the Mount, you can see it as civil disobedience. But look at the nature of civil disobedience. If someone strikes you, what do you do? You don't say, up yours, let's go. You turn the other cheek as a form of civil disobedience. He says, if someone causes you to, to walk a mile, who's referencing Rome, that soldiers could demand non-Roman citizens to carry their stuff for a mile. What does Jesus say? Up yours. That's what you say to the Roman. Yeah, you're illegitimate. No, what do you do? You carry it two miles. Again, need to think about the implications of Jesus' words. Let's talk about this implication. He says, give to God what is God's. And I love the question he asks. He asks the question, what image or likeness or inscription are on the coin? And in fact, if it was a denarius, it would have been the image of Tiberius Caesar, and it would have the son of the divine Augustus around the perimeter of the coin. On the other side, it would have the Roman goddess of peace, Pax, with the phrase high priest. Boy, can you imagine as a faithful Jew carrying that around in that way? Now Jesus says whose image is on the coin I believe within that question is this question. Whose image are you made in? And the answer is not Caesar. The answer is is you are made in the image of God. Give to Caesar's, Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. We're told very plainly, 
a couple of times, but Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, as the Apostle Paul said, is you are not your own. You were purchased at a price. Jesus died for you. You are his. He's your creator. I love to ask, especially my kids, hey, does God have any say in this sense of identity that you're talking about? In the decision you're about to make, does God weigh in? Because after all, he's your creator. In your sense of call and meaning and purpose, does God get to weigh in on those dreams and those aspirations and the meaning that you're called to? After all, it's in his image you were created. You're his. Give everything, all who you are, to him. Paul says, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Sometimes I like the New King James Version. By the mercies of God that you present your bodies. In this passage, he's saying all of who you are as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul is contrasting again the Old Testament sacrificial system. He says we don't sacrifice animals anymore. You know who we sacrifice? Look at your neighbor go, you, right? We sacrifice Jesus. He was the sacred lamb. Now it's our turn. Our lives are a living sacrifice before the Lord. We give all of who we are. Paul goes on in the Romans passage. He says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. The NIV says, patterns of this world. Don't be conformed. Don't live as you see the Gentiles those without their primary citizenship in heaven, don't be conformed to the patterns of living and their, you could say, political views, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Part of what that scripture means is many of us are doing it backwards. We're allowing our political views to inform our faith. What Jesus is saying in part is, no, we allow our faith to inform our political views. Amen? Citizen in heaven, and we do that, and we need to think, think about the patterns of this world. I'm just going to name a couple of them. There is so much nastiness in our culture and the political realms. Paul says, don't do that. Don't participate. 
in that nastiness and division and cancel culture and lack of discussion and civility and love, all of that, those are patterns of this world. Reject that. Live in a different way. I want to return to this ambassador idea. It says, this is from 2 Corinthians 5, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. For, I like the, this, the idea of ambassador because it has political Im- implications, yes? That ambassador, if, if you think about the role of an ambassador, there's a holy separation and distance between you and the state or government or politics in which you're involved in. Yes? And yet, at the same time, the ambassador has a holy engagement. It's representing Christ Jesus to Republicans and Democrats and independents that we have a different value system, that we, when we engage in politics in any way, from social media to conversation with family and friends or coworkers to how we vote, we have a different priority and value system and it begins here. Paul actually says, God is making your, his appeal through you in this world. I want to suggest if we are following the patterns of this world and we're nasty and hate-filled and judgmental that we're doing a very poor job of being kingdom ambassadors. Amen? I want us to think in this week, what does it look like to be a sojourner? What does it look like that our primary citizenship is in heaven? How does God call us with that foundation? How should we engage in our civil responsibilities as well as our politics and vote? Can we do that? Can we pray? Can we come before the Lord and say, Lord, would you teach me on this? I want to live this election cycle differently. And then I'll tell you next week who Jesus is going to vote for. I'm not going to do that. But perhaps we're going to have some things to hold on to. But this foundation is more important than anything else. Would you pull back and recognize the patterns of this world that Jesus is saying, separate. Yeah, come on forward, worship team. Would you say, no. How can I do it different? How can I live? How can I, and Lord, would you bring that sense? Because I think if we really get this idea of ambassador and sojourner, then the fears and the anxiety that we bring to this political process 
will begin to reduce and fade. And the trust in the Father and in the reigning Lord Jesus Christ will increase. Since we're almost out of time, would you stand up together with me? If you're willing, would you, would you put out your hands to receive the blessing? People of God, you are sojourners. You are aliens in this world. People of God, you are ambassadors of Jesus. You represent your true king. You are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven in every conversation, in every post, in every relationship we have. Would you be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.